Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, part two of my two-part series on the mystery of the Copper Scroll. I believe that the Copper Scroll is a real and authentic document that points to Jerusalem temple treasure. It is important if the Copper Scroll can lead to anything that is associated with the rituals and the sacrificial systems that took place in the Jewish temple, because we don't have that. We've never been able to unearth that. This podcast is brought to you by Canada's decontamination specialists, crime and trauma scene cleaners. Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners is committed to helping people when tragedy strikes. Their objective is to restore safety to an environment in the most professional and discreet manner possible. To contact Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners, visit crimescenecleaners.ca. Call 1-866-724-0800, 1-866-724-0800, or email them at info at crimescenecleaners.ca. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. Shelley Neese is standing by to discuss the Copper Scroll Project, part two of our conversation. A bit of drama here in Greece. On Saturday, we were at our favorite beach just down the road at the Messinian Bay Hotel, and the wind was coming out of the northeast. It was a really stiff wind. The waves were really choppy. And we were up top overlooking the beach on our... uh, our deck chairs, and North and I were both buried in our books. We're reading Agatha Christie Mysteries, by the way. And all of a sudden, a huge gust of wind picked up this huge shade umbrella, which was attached to a very big metal pipe in the ground, but there was no safety pin to prevent it from being pulled out of the ground. And this umbrella launched, and it took off across the patio and went straight past us before the pipe got tangled up in the stair handrails leading down to the beach. It was an absolute miracle. No one was either impaled or bludgeoned by this metal projectile and uh, umbrella. And then Sunday morning at church, one of the psaltis or chanters, if you wish, this very old and distinguished looking man with a great deep voice, suddenly keeled over and fell to the ground. And of course, everyone went rushing over and uh, they called an ambulance and he was wheeled out on a stretcher during the reading of the gospel. He looked alert and and just got dizzy and dehydrated, I guess. Otherwise, he looked to be fine. Other than those two episodes, all is well here in southern Greece. We had an amazing red sky last night over the Messinian Bay, the third or fourth such sky in a row. You know that old saying, red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in morning, sailors take warning. No red skies in the morning thus far. Uh, We had our telescope out. Uh, It's a Celestron Astromaster, and we were looking up at uh, Jupiter and Saturn. Absolutely incredible. All right, let's get to part two of my conversation with Shelley Neese and the Copper Scroll. We spent part one really laying the groundwork and explaining what the Dead Sea Scrolls are all about their discovery in a cave in Qumran back in the 1940s, and and what their significance is. So now we're talking about the actual copper scrolls, and you described them, uh, how they were found in in sort of two pieces, or the the copper scroll was found in two pieces. And as you say, the material, very, very unique. So obviously this is something quite separate from, uh, you know, the other other scrolls, which were on parchment. and the language is very different. I mean, it's 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 not you know poetic. It's not it's not prose. It's it's it reads like kind of an inventory. Exactly. I mean, there's sort of something 
I think about a lot of times is that for most of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the language and the vocabulary used in them, it's it's biblical, right? So we can we have a very rich Hebrew vocabulary in terms of if you were to describe the throne of God um, and the the angels surrounding it. But we have a very limited Hebrew vocabulary, at least we did before the rebirth of Hebrew, if I needed to tell you in Hebrew how to dig a ditch, you know, so any sort of practical, non-biblical Hebrew. And that's the thing, the Copper Scroll had words that people hadn't seen, because these were words that were just very practical, dry, um, non-biblical, and so, so... I think for a long time people didn't even know what to do with the Copper Scroll and its contents because it is just this this inventory and this list. And um, but I should back up. So the Copper Scroll it actually took three years to open the Copper Scroll. So after that moment in 1952, and it was one of the few um, caves in the around the Dead Sea Scroll of all the Dead Sea Scroll caves that had been found by a legitimate archaeological team. Um, And it was sponsored by the Jordanian Department of Antiquities, which is important because the Copper Scroll today is not with the rest of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's actually in Jordan. It's in Amman, Jordan. So it's not sitting in Jerusalem with the rest of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, And so it sat in Amman, Jordan for three years. And the problem was, is that it crumbled to the slightest touch. So scholars could look at the Copper Scroll and they could see words protruding from, you know, from the outermost layer, and they could see words like gold and silver, but they didn't know how to open it. Without, and, without destroying it. Absolutely. I mean, even when you just touch the edge, it would crumble because it did what copper does, and it oxidized, and it was green, and it was brittle. In a way, copper was the perfect perfect sort of material choice for these scribes 2,000 years ago because copper has a way of preserving itself, you know, with the green patina, just like the Statue of Liberty. So, um, so if they could just unroll it, they knew that they would be able to see the text as it was written 2,000 years ago. But the problem was was figuring out how to do that and, and finding also um, someone who had the guts to to take that chance. They talked with someone at Johns Hopkins University, a metallurgist there who didn't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole. And um, so there was this one editor on the Dead Sea Scroll publication team. Back then there was no Jewish scholars allowed on the publication team. The, The team was kind of organized and orchestrated by Jordan. And so they were really limited in terms of the expertise available in the world. But, his name was John Allegro. He was probably one of the nuttiest of all of the Dead Sea Scrolls kind of early scholars, but he really championed the Copper Scroll. I think a lot of them were just overwhelmed with the workload. There was really too few Dead Sea Scroll scholars, and this was the time in the 50s that the black market was just being flooded. I mean, they were getting fragments that they had to put together, like puzzle pieces and and then real whole scrolls that they were translating. So I think partially they were just overwhelmed with their own workload, and it really just took one person who couldn't get the copper scroll out of their head. And John Allegro took it to Manchester University and really was just knocking on on doors. That was where he was an alumni from, and, and he was just looking for anyone that could potentially open the scroll. He he found he found what he was looking for, which was a gutsy believer. Um, Henry Wright Baker was his name, and he was actually just part of the College of Engineering. But he came up with a very what would look to us today a very crude contraption. He borrowed materials from the School of Dentistry, some old retired World War II materials, and came up with. Um, a saw and a spindle and a vacuum, and he cut it open. A real Mag- did- a MacGyver before totally. his time. Totally. That night, he had made plans. You know, they 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 made the contraption. John Allegro tells Henry Wright Baker, "I'll meet you back here in the morning, and we'll make the first cut." And at that point, they still didn't know. I mean. The, the spindle did a thing where it would kind of jump on the table every few seconds. So they really still didn't know. Oh, word. Like one wrong. mistake and it's lost forever. 
lost forever. And no pressure. The, no pressure. The, the only words they can see are gold and silver. So they know that what <laughs> is in there is important. But he, they make a plan to meet back the next morning. But Henry Wright Baker records in his diary that he made the first cut that night because had he shattered it, he wanted to be alone in his mm. misery. Mm-hmm. So the next morning, John Allegro comes back, and and and, and they it, and it's almost already done. The job is already done, but they cut it. They weren't able to unroll it. Maybe today we could have figured out a way to unroll it, but they actually cut it into twenty three strips. They lost very little in terms of the content or the lettering in that process. They were pretty thin strips, um, and so. Almost immediately, John Allegro is able to read the contents of the Copper Scroll. It's written out in 12 columns. It's over 60 locations. And one item at a time or one described location at a time, he's realizing that every single one says where to go, how deep to dig, and what is buried. So it's a verbal treasure map. A treasure map. Not a laundry list, not you know some some uh, someone one of the Essenes being sent to the Quickie Mart with a list of groceries, a bag, a quarter milk. This is where to find the gold and the silver and and what else? Not just gold well, and, and silver. No, because it's using words like holy or vessels or sacred. Um, the total amount of treasure listed out in the Copper Scroll. There's debate about this because. It uses talents as in terms of measuring, or at least it does, and, and we think. And and so if a talent then meant what we think a talent meant, which is probably the equivalent of 70 pounds, um, that it would be about 160 tons of gold, silver, and bronze. Dear so, Lord. So that seems just too copious. So even if it was half that, even if a talent, you know, is, is half of what we anticipated it being, it's still, you know, no matter how you slice it, that it really, it's um, sort of a ridiculous amount of treasure. And so really the only place, besides the fact that it does have descriptive adjectives like, you know, holy and sacred and tithes um, that point to the temple, we also just know that the only place in Jerusalem or the only place in Israel that would have had access to such great wealth would have been the temple. So we're talking about King Solomon. Well, there's debate about that as well, but it's, it technically dates to the time period. I mean, most scholars think that the Copper School dates to the to the Second Temple. Oh, the period. Second Temple. Mm-hmm. But is it? But it, this is still tricky. I mean, it could. <laughs> there's ways you can slice it that it could have been Solomon's Temple, but in terms of its its Masoretic Hebrew, or that's the thought, and so. If if the the Hebrew of the day matches the treasure that it's pointing to, then it would have been Second Temple period. So it would have been pre-Romans destroying the Second Temple. So the idea then is that the uh, in, be, before the, the Second Temple is destroyed, presumably that treasure is taken somewhere. Uh, its location, it's buried. Its location is hammered out on this copper scroll, and then the copper scroll. Now, this is interesting because this gets back to the question of the, uh, you know, where did the, the Dead Sea Scrolls come from? Did they come from the Jerusalem, Jerusalem Library or were they, were they written by scribes in, in uh, Qumran? If the, if the treasure points to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, wouldn't the map have originated in Jerusalem and therefore isn't it possible all the Dead Sea Scrolls originated in Jerusalem? Exactly. So there are people, so you've, you're you connecting these dots and peeling back the onion. So there are people that do look at the Copper Scroll, um, you know, people that, that are on the non-Essene side of this debate and believe that they all originated in Jerusalem, and they see the Copper Scroll as evidence for that, like some of their best evidence for that. Now, there's another way that you could look at it. There is some idea that Qumran was actually... And, and the Dead Sea Scroll Caves were Geniza. You know, Geniza is is a, J, a Jewish repository unit for anything that has the name of Yahweh on it. It can't be thrown away. So, we you know, we found this in Cairo, one of the richest um, 
centuries long. Geniza is famous as in, was in Cairo, and it's just this idea that if it has the holy name of God on it, that it can't be thrown away, and so you just safely put it in a repository or some sort of deposit system. And we know that Jews have had a long practice of doing this, but it doesn't, and so there's a possibility or a theory that Qumran was actually a Geniza, and because every scroll that, that we've found or been able to translate and recover had the name of Yahweh in it, and um, also that would also apply potentially to the items listed, listed in the Copper Scroll, because we know that any time, we know this from extra-biblical sources, Jewish sources, but that if a priestly vestment, for example, if it was um, damaged in any way, that it couldn't be thrown away. Uh, we were talking about um, the, uh, the fact that the Copper Scroll is a treasure map pointing to tons and tons, tens of tons of gold and silver, uh, possibly uh, pointing to the, the Second Temple, which was destroyed by the Romans A.D. 70. But some say could even you could maybe connect the dots all the way back to Solomon's Temple. Uh, we're all familiar with the riches of Solomon's Temple. Um, and we were also, you know, wondering whether the, the fact that the, the, the Copper Scroll points to this, this treasure uh, in Jerusalem might mean that all of the Dead Sea Scrolls came from Jerusalem. Um, and then we were also discussing the, the fact that because everything contained in those scrolls or in, in, those, in those vessels um, has Yahweh written on it. And so you can't throw that out. So Qumran, the other theories, becomes this repository for, for everything that has, has uh, Yahweh written on it, which also goes back to your point earlier about the one book of the Old Testament that's not contained is Esther because it doesn't have Yahweh in that book. Exactly. So again, that, I don't know. All clues. Yeah, it's absolutely. all clues that, and it just makes sense too in terms of what we know about Jewish history and the way that holy vessels and scrolls were treated. The other option, though, is that you know if this was a period, we have lots of sort of like biblical clues that any time of period of of, of corruption in the priesthood or just um, by foreign oppressors in Jerusalem that at least in the case of Josiah, that it seems to be that they would take things out of the temple or the mo most holy of the temple furniture, at least, that, you know, that almost like that there were safety deposits for these things anytime that um, holy temple treasure or holy temple furniture might have been threatened, either from the outside, from sort of a Roman or a foreign occupier, but also just from the inside if the Israelite king at the time was corrupt or um, or evil or um, and so all of this either either way whatever the Copper Scrolls origin story there most of that's all applies to the Second Temple period I will say that all of the oral traditions for for a temple rescue operation point to first temple period so that we don't really have many of those oral traditions that, you know, that there was a covert rescue operation to get things out of the temple in time before the Romans destroyed the temple. But there is plenty of examples of that about the first temple. I mean, the most obvious being in second Maccabees, the story of Jeremiah secreting things out of the temple and hiding it on his way to Mount Nebo. But there's also a Kabbalistic document from um, from that we know from about 16th century Amsterdam that was found called Treatise of the Temple Vessels, and it's also this this description of a a covert operation where priests secret things out of the temple before the Babylonians destroy the temple. So you know, so all of these, if you kind of just connect them all, something happened at some time where at least priests priests that were, were concerned about the Holy Temple furniture, Holy Temple vessels, had a system and a way to get them out before they were threatened. Okay, so the million-dollar question, the $64 million question. Mm -hmm. What about the Ark of the Covenant? Is that mentioned in the Copper Scroll? So that's a great question, and it depends on the translation. It never... Now, remember, like we said, with all of the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
they never give us the helpful, you know, just directly naming a historical figure or their name or their authorship. They will always make this difficult. So, no, the Copper Scroll never directly says Ark of the Covenant. However, according to one popular translation of the Copper Scroll, um, it refers to Cavern of the Shekhinah, um, which that is, you know, the the word for God's holy presence that rests upon the ark. Um, and this particular hiding spot is identified potentially with um, a collapsed cave or a cave much like the caves around the Dead Sea. So, so a cave hiding the Ark of the Covenant, to me, that one line, Cavern of the Shekhinah, see, it, it seems like it could potentially fit. Um, also, in terms of the Ark of the Covenant still being out there and not being destroyed, you know, there is a long Jewish tradition that despite the temple being destroyed and, and Jews have a day that they mourn the loss of the temple every year, there's no day that they mourn the loss of the Ark of the Covenant. Like, the Ark of the Covenant is believed to be hidden and to be only recoverable in the, in the age of the Messiah. Right, and only by or, a Levite, correct? Exactly, and according to Jeremiah, or to Second Maccabees, when Jeremiah hides it, he says, you know, this will not be found until the age of mercy comes. And so anytime we talk about the Ark of the Covenant or any of the traditions surrounding it, it's that it's it's hidden, it's not forever lost, um, but that it can only be returned kind of during for the next age. So um, the, the the investigator Allegro, who had taken mm-hmm. he first of all the fact that he was allowed to take the copper scrolls back to the United States uh, does that speak well, more to the fact that the Jordanians didn't think it was really important? Well, he, yeah, he took it to Manchester University, so he took it to England. Oh, I'm sorry, he England. English himself. Still. No, but you're right. He did contact John Hopkins to see if they, they didn't want to, they didn't want to even touch it. So he didn't fly to Hopkins with it, but it was in England. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there was just a lot of distraction with all of the things on the black market at the time. And this is, this is the golden age of Israeli archaeology. You know, Mossad is about to be um, excavated. Um, and so lots of things are happening. So they did completely dismiss the importance of the Copper Scroll, though, almost immediately after it was opened, not just by Jordan or Israel, but also internationally. The New York Times ran an article almost immediately after it was open, dismissing it as as just they talk about that it looks like it was something that was written in the light of the moon and blood on Treasure Island, you know, just so immediately sort of putting it in the category of myth and legend and not even talking about the fact that the Copper Scroll has no myth and no legend. There's no figures in it. You know, there's no hero. There's no narrative, um, which is why all Dead Sea Scroll scholars, they don't agree on anything. But the one thing that they do agree on is that the Copper Scroll had to be an authentic document because it doesn't have any value otherwise. Um, It's not like it's propping up an ancient legend. I mean, it doesn't even have um, any characters in it. It's written very dryly. It's written on expensive material. It would have, you know, been costly for them to inscribe this on copper. Oh, and this is really interesting. It's actually very poor handwriting as well. Um, if you if you look at it, and you can see this online too, but if you look at a transcription or a facsimile of the Copper Scroll, it looks like the handwriting is hurried. It's definitely unskilled. It even looks like there's several different people, probably about five different handwritings on it. And the words get squished together and they make very kind of elementary scribal mistakes for for even like a first grader in Israel could sort of identify certain mistakes that they make and using um, Hebrew words that or Hebrew letters that should just be at the end of a word in a certain way, they'll put it in the middle. Which, which um, raises some suspicion. How do we know that this is the real McCoy, that it's not a hoax? So, the, to, what actually for a lot of scholars, 
the poor quality of the penmanship almost is another indicator for its authenticity because this was something it looks like that they were, it was like a note to self, you know, for these priests or these unprofessional scribes that they were saying they weren't doing this so that they could display it in the temple or display it in a home, that this was something that they chose metal so that it would sort of like survive the test of time. And also um, it was a note to self. So, that, you know, go in like the Copper Scroll reads, like go in Matthew's courtyard and buried in the peristyle is, you know, 17 talents of silver. Go in the stairs facing east that measure 40 cubits long and find, you know, a chest full of treasure. So it'll kind of just go like that for 60 different locations. And so the fact, some people have even thought one theory is that they actually gave the task of, of chiseling out um, the locations on the copper to an illiterate person so that they wouldn't be able to go back and find the treasure. <laughs> fascinating. Oh, fascinating. So they didn't really right. know, they didn't know what they were transcribing because they couldn't read. Uh, so that's another it's sort very, of a security measure. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Very possible. So 60 different locations, this this treasure is spread out. Uh, did Allegro, when he, when he, well, he didn't unscroll it, but when he when right. he when translated he, it, when he translated it, what I mean, did he jot it down on a, on a, a notepad? Did he keep it somewhere? What what happened to the translation? And did Allegro set out to find the treasure himself? So great question. He originally, you know, there's a lot of ownership and possessive issues over each Dead Sea Scroll and who got to translate it and who got to publish it. I mean, you know, not anything that's foreign to academia today either. Technically, the Copper Scroll was not his to publish. It was another Dead Sea Scroll editor named Millick. And so even though John Allegro was the first to lay his eyes on it and the first to translate it, he was a pretty quick worker, too. Um, not probably, by most standards, not as good as some of his other colleagues, but he was quick and, and good enough because the Copper Scrolls actually, you know, was fairly straightforward for him to translate. And so he fires off a letter to his to his boss and says, these scrolls are red hot. We've got to start digging. You know, he's the champion of the Copper Scroll. Um, but by sort of the the you know the ethics of the Dead Sea Scroll editor team he had to wait for his other colleague who technically the Copper Scroll was under his um, you know under his rubric in terms of what he got to publish he had to wait for that one and he took years so really the Copper Scroll translation and the excitement about it almost fizzled out just because of this kind of like scholarly bureaucracy um, and, and, and possession and ownership. Um, also, though, John Allegro did. He, he was better with the media. He was better at bringing the Dead Sea Scrolls to the public. And so he was able to launch a little bit of an expedition in pursuit of Copper Scroll treasure. As, as you've probably picked up, he wasn't necessarily a man of, you know, Olympian patience, though. So he didn't prove to kind of have the personality that you need for archaeology. So he did. He went to three different places. He went to um, some of the funerary shrines outside the old city walls in Jerusalem because he thought that some of the descriptions might point to the tomb of Absalom and, and those, those um, that area, if anyone's familiar with Jerusalem. But there's very old uh, graves all around um, on that sally side of the, the valley in Jerusalem. He dug there, but really kind of gave up there early. He dug at Qumran, but really kind of used the metal detector at Qumran that wasn't that great because the soil there is mineralized. M metal detectors didn't work that great in that kind of environment. And his best job was at this place called Hircania, which is... Um, south of Quran, it's not too far, but it was an unexcavated ruin, and he really was able to match up some of the details with with that particular site. It's kind of like Masada, it's a mountaintop fortress in the desert, and really sort of gave up there, too. More of my conversation with Shelley Neese on the Copper Scroll Project, when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. 
Today, I'd like to introduce you to my Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary, an online service offering hundreds of professional supplement brands, personal care items, essential oils, pet care products, and much more. And I'm excited to introduce my newest partner, Colleen Forgus, who manages the store. Colleen is a professional chef and holistic nutritional therapy consultant. Colleen will be joining me periodically to provide quick health and nutrition tips. Colleen Forgus, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Great, Richard. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited about this partnership. This is going to be so much fun. And I should mention that they can visit strangeplanet.ca. They just click on the full script button and they can create an account immediately. And you'll be providing subscribers with health and nutrition tips, detailed supplement information and special promotions for Strange Planet subscribers. First of all, just take us on a little tour of the full script dispensary. This dispensary is only available to people who are professionals in the health and nutrition world. So that's one of the things that I really think is fabulous is that anyone who subscribes and orders off of this dispensary knows that they are getting authentic products. I think there's a lot of trouble out there on the internet right now buying from third party sellers. You don't know that you're getting what you should be getting. So with full script, it's completely legitimate and people are getting the best and highest quality supplements. These are supplements that can only be purchased through professional like a doctor or a nutritionist or some a chiropractor, someone who is licensed and certified to have a, a, an account with Fullscript. Tell my listeners about some of the special discounts they receive. Well, everyone who signs up through Strange Planet will always be receiving a 10% discount off of retail prices. And for any orders over $50, they will always get free shipping as well. Terrific. Talk next week, Colleen. Sounds great, Richard. Thank you. To create your account at the Full Script Dispensary, visit strangeplanet.ca. Click on the Full Script button and create your account. Full Script Dispensary, nature grade, science made. The statements made herein have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. If you have any concerns about your own health, you should always consult with a physician or healthcare professional. In another reality, Richard is a very strong and handsome man. Just not in our reality. Although I heard somebody passing him in the hall the other day, and it was, what, what a handsome man Richard is. I made that up. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. We are back with Shelley Neese, the author of The Copper Scroll Project. Uh, so after Allegro sort of gives up, what happens to the, uh, uh, the, uh, the scroll? Right. Well, so I think for a lot of people or for a lot of archaeologists, the Copper Scroll occupies this tricky space because archaeologists don't take ancient texts and use them as a method for for finding ruins, much less treasure. Um, you know, so there's a lot in Israel. This this will create a lot of stigma, even if you take the Bible necessarily and you know go try and dig up the Bible. That was done more in the 1800s or you know the early earliest phase of, of biblical archaeology in Israel. But now scholars really try to avoid that um, because, for one, it's always difficult to look with intention for something. You know to you excavate an area and you excavate it to the last level of habitation. And if you find something great, but you don't necessarily go looking for something in particular, especially using an ancient text. And so, so the copper scroll, it, it, it offered a lot. It gave a lot of stigma, negative stigma to anyone who, who would try and do that. So John Allegro got a lot of um, negative feedback. <laughs> let's just say that for pursuing copper scroll treasure and using the copper scroll for what it was and trying to follow its verbal descriptions in terms of where to find treasure and and so because of that, you we really don't see anyone else really do what he did as a professional or as a scholar and as as an archaeologist. Now, 
many archaeologists have gotten a little bit of a bee in their bonnet about copper scroll, but they and they've told me that privately, you know, that the copper scroll haunts them, that they'll wonder sometimes when they're excavating these places if it's connected to copper scroll treasure, but they never outwardly advertise that they, you know, are in pursuit of copper scroll treasure. Right, right. So, it eventually it is returned to Jordan? Right, so the copper scroll to this day sits in Jordan and Amman, Jordan, cut into 23 pieces. There's been lots of translations of it. In general, most of the translations, because the, you know, handwriting is a little shoddy, because the words are squished together at different points, so it's hard to know when one word begins and one word ends. The translations do differ from each other a bit, but there's also a lot of agreement in each of the translations. And do you believe, Shelley? Do you believe or maybe know for a fact that the the Copper Scroll could lead us to the location of the Ark of the Covenant? I believe that the Copper Scroll is a real and authentic document that points to Jerusalem temple treasure. I also know that nothing from the interior of the temple has ever been found. So that's one thing that really... You know, obviously the Jewish temple existed, and and any kind of temple denial um, is just based on something other than any kind of historical facts. So it's hard to use historical facts to fight, uh, you know, to fight myth, but... It is important. It's an important part of the Palestinian sort of fight, and and what they bring up a lot is the fact that nothing has ever been found from the interior of the Jewish temple, either the first temple or the second temple. It doesn't help that we can't dig on the Temple Mount. But what I'm trying to say is that anything, it is important if the Copper Scroll can lead to anything that is associated with the the rituals and the sacrificial systems that took place in the Jewish temple, because we don't have that. We've never been able to unearth that. And so even if one thing is found, it it sort of rewrites that script. Right. But let me go further, though. If, I mean, Mm -hmm. the Ark of the Covenant, I mean, contains awesome power, I happen to believe. Mm -hmm. Awesome power uh, to to destroy, to, uh, you know, brought down the walls of Jericho. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, if this copper Killed scroll... scorpions and snakes yes, in its wake. Yeah. Giant scorpions. If this, right. if this map leads to the, the Ark of the Covenant, this, this would be the, the greatest discovery in history, never mind the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 20th century, in, in right. history. So that brings us to... Give me a, a quick summary of, of who Jim Barfield is. Sure. He is a retired arson investigator from Oklahoma. He self-deprecates and says that, you know, he doesn't have any letters behind his name other than being a certified fire truck driver. But I will say that that's nonsense. He's a very, very self-educated man and, and an internationally awarded arson investigator. All right, Shelley. This is where the rubber hits the road. Jim Barfield, this arson investigator from Oklahoma City, retired. How did he become interested in the Copper Scroll treasure map? And uh, then we'll get into um, how he f- figures he or how he thinks he's figured out this mystery. Absolutely. So Jim Barfield is the kind of guy that was studying Dead Sea Scroll text and and translations, and when he was taking shifts at the fire department um, as a young fireman. I mean, he's just always been really interested in the Dead Sea Scrolls, always really drawn to them. And so the Copper Scroll was the least interesting of the Dead Sea Scrolls to him for for the most part because of all the things that we've said on the show. But really, one day after talking to a man named Vendel Jones, who is famously connected to the Copper Scroll and that he he's passed away now, but he spent most of his life in search of Copper Scroll treasure. I haven't mentioned him because he's not an archaeologist, he's not an explorer, scholar. He was, you know, he was a rogue um, explorer, but Jim Barfield met him and he and he was intrigued by all of his Copper Scroll research. And so he sat, decided to just look at the Copper Scroll with new eyes. What he did that was different in terms of what anyone else had done when they 
tried to identify any recognizable parts of the copper scroll with something in Israel today because the problem is is the copper scroll is very specific so when it says double entry pools or stairs facing eastward or courtyards or cisterns or peristyles we just don't know if that was written 2,000 years ago how in the world we would place it with anything today or anything that's still in existence because all those clues uh, those visual markers are gone they've turned to dust perhaps Totally. Just way too specific to be helpful, even, almost. Um, You know, it'd be like if someone found my grocery list in 2,000 years. And so so this copper scroll opens up, though, and it says, in the ruin, which is in the valley of Accor. And so what he did that, it's it's not declaring him a genius, but it's just, you know, sometimes the simplest answer is looking you right in the face. And so when he reads that first line, most copper scroll experts saw that as just related to the very first location and not to the 60 following. He read it and just immediately saw it as a preamble as, you know, what it's saying is in the ruin, which is in the Valley of Accor, everything that follows is buried. And so there's one obvious ruin that is in what's traditionally thought of as the Valley of Accor, and that's Qumran. There's other ruins, but Qumran's the most popular one. Qumran's the one that we associate with the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so he looked at an aerial map of Qumran and thought, well, I wonder if there's any architectural matches between, you know, what we see here described on the Copper Scroll and, and a map of Qumran. And so the very next line talks about stairs facing eastward that measure 40 cubits. So it's pretty easy to look at a map of Qumran and say, see that there are stairs facing eastward. He dug into the scholarship, into the publications from the most recent excavations at that time and found, you know, d- did a little bit of a conversion, a mathematical conversion to find out how long those stairs were. But as it turns out, they're 19 meters. They're exactly 40 cubits. Oh, my. Um, oh, my. And so take that and just multiply it times 60. <laughs> and that's what he does. So when the Copper Scroll, my one of my favorites is, is it describes a double entry pool with stairs facing to the left. And one of the most famous parts of Qumran is this one very peculiar mixer, this very peculiar ritual bath that has a double entry with stairs that go down and go to the left. It's at the northwest edge of the community. It's exactly as it's described in the Copper Scroll. So it's really just phenomenal. I mean, it's like the the descriptions in the Copper Scroll, once you're just focused on Qumran, I mean, it all leaps out at you from the page. And did he publish? Well, obviously, because you know about it. He, I mean, he... He's talked about this. So well, why isn't Qumran being excavated right now? Right. So he was able just, and this is, you know, part of, I've been writing this book for 10 years. So archaeology takes time. It takes bureaucracy. It takes patience, really Olympian patience. But the thing is, is he was, you know, sitting in his home in Lawton, Oklahoma. So how he got a meeting with the Antiquities Authority in Israel, um, that's a long story in itself, but it happens. And within really a year and a half from that point, from the first time that he is able to, to pinpoint a location on the Copper Scroll, he was able to excavate in Qumran um, with an archaeologist who since has died young in a tragic cave accident, but his name was Yuval Peleg. And he was the number two in command of Qumran. And so they picked four or five different test sites. I was actually there for this particular dig and um, to do probes in Qumran to see if the research does indeed, you know, point to Copper Scroll treasure. And by the way, Yuval Peleg, he had just finished publishing. Um, he was an archaeologist that had dug at Qumran for years and had determined that it was nothing more than an ancient pottery factory. So even the fact that he was open-minded enough and saw the research as as convincing enough to go against his own theory and beliefs in terms of Qumran's importance was impressive. But the problem was is that the Copper Scroll talks about digging at depths that are 
up to 12 feet, you know, add on to that 2,000 years of sand <laughs> and what has blown in. And so we're talking about sometimes digging 13, 14 feet. Um, and Qumran is a sacred site as it is to Israel. This is a precious site. So you would end up turning Qumran into like a up, you know, up close shot of the moon. I mean, you would just have craters all over. And um, so the dig got stopped because of, of the damage that it could potentially cause to Qumran. And so for a long time, it was a period of waiting out the technology to be able to get a metal detector that would be able to to kind of tell us if there was something very deep, if it was ferrous or non-ferrous metals, what you know, what kind of metal it was, and how large it was. Well, if if we're talking about, let's be conservative. Uh, I think mm-hmm. you said originally uh, in terms of t- 150, tons. and then you cut it in half. So let's say 75 tons of gold and silver, uh, and that's not including the uh, the furniture. Uh, and the Ark of the Covenant, or whatever, whatever else, or more altar, exactly, or more scrolls. We'd have to be talking about a large underground chamber, would we not? Right. And, and, right. And, and couldn't you use some sort of deep uh, ground penetrating sonar? I mean, they surely have that now to to find right. it, which has been done. And it has shown that cavities are underneath Quran. You know, Randall Price, um, he's an archaeologist connected with Liberty University. He's done excavations on the plateau just right outside of Qumran, and he has found cavities there. There's other scholars who have contacted me even since the publication of this book and who, who have said, we know of cavities there. Um, so there's definitely indication that there's cavities at Qumran, but all of that is, Technically, Qumran is excavated to the last level of habitation. To dig and to create probes and to, to look for cavities, you know, it gets you in this, this dilemma that you see in archaeology all the time, is do you destroy something precious for potentially what's underneath, or do you let it lie? Do you keep it for some future excavation? I mean, this this sort of dilemma, you know, you see it with the terracotta warriors in China. The, the debate happened with King Tut's tomb in Egypt and potentially the void that's on the other side. So I've seen this flesh out in other parts of the world, but also, you know, with Qumran and the Bible attached to it and potential temple treasures, like, it's more weighted and it, it, seems, um, it seems heavier. But I will say that we do have a metal detector now that can kind of do that job. And it's a long story, but a member of Israel's Knesset was able to do a scan at five of the locations connected to the Copper Scroll. It's called a Lorenz metal detector. If you know anything about metal detectors, I mean, it's kind of the top of the line. It's a $10,000 metal detector. And at four of those five sites, it scanned positive for non-ferrous metals, so that means gold, silver, or bronze. They adjusted the settings so that it would only tell if it was something very large and um, if it was deep. So it would tell us if it was non-ferrous, if it was large, and if it was deep. And one of the sites in particular, four of the five scanned positive for, for that, which is something in and of itself. One of the sites, which is the one that I told you that's connected, that says, you know, Cavern of the Shekhinah, um, it, it looked like a reed of Fort Knox. Oh, my. It was my. something very large. Oh, my. And gold, silver, or bronze, and very deep. Uh, this isn't just about, you know, treasure and of, of uncalculable wealth. We're talking about geopolitical implications here as well. Is that Huge. possibly... Keeping uh, keeping a lid on this, for example, uh, you know, if they were to to verify that they were that this this could confirm the existence of not confirm, we know that the first and second temple existed, but mm-hmm. uh, for this to be publicly confirmed, uh, I mean, is it is it thought that this could scuttle any potential future peace deal, or I mean, what's what's keeping a lid on this aside from just, well, we don't want to disrupt uh, this holy site. Right. Well, absolutely. It's Area C, like we talked about earlier. So technically, 
whatever comes out of the ground there. Let's say it is the Ark of the Covenant or the Breastplate of Righteousness. There's a part of the Copper Scroll that says, my priestly vestment. It uses the possessive yud at the end of priestly vestment. So indicating that whoever wrote this might have been a priest himself and he had his own priestly vestment. So let's say it's any of that. Whatever comes out of the Qumran, technically by international law, is disputed property. So you can bet that if whatever it is, that it will be claimed by Jordan, that it will be claimed by Palestinians. Even today, anywhere the Dead Sea Scrolls are being exhibited, whether or not that's in Denver or San Diego, there will be protesters there saying that these are not the under the propriety of Israel, that they are illegally owning these, never mind the fact that they're Jewish texts written in Hebrew by Jewish authors. So, you know, I... If Israel is keeping the lid on it because, you know, waiting for some future time that it would be less controversial, I mean, I can't, I can't say that I don't understand that. Um, it's hard to imagine because it's hard to stop progress and it's hard to put smoke back in a bottle. But at least that's my hope is just by making a groundswell of information. And I really, we've known about this scan. I've withheld this information for a long time, just seeing if things could happen naturally and organically through the right channels and systems. But it's, it's, it's proven to, you know, not be able to overcome the, the geopolitics. And so that's what I'm hoping is just this groundswell of information. And I'm, we're seeing that happen in Israel as Israelis are finding this story out. Um, that not, not to create like rage, but just to create a pressing need that no, this is actually worth the test. And this one particular site will not damage Qumran. So we really zoned in all of our efforts on even just testing this one site where we have a uber positive scan and is not threatening to the Qumran ruins itself. You know, when something comes out of the ground there, then we'll move on to, to Qumran proper and maybe every the, well, it'll tilt the scales in that way. This is potentially uh, just, you know, I can't even under or overstate the enormity of this. The Copper Scroll Project, an ancient secret fuels the battle for the Temple Mount. Shelley, thank you so much for hanging out for the last two hours. This has been uh, exciting you. and enlightening. Thank you so much, Richard. My pleasure. Okay, before I say goodnight to the moon over Messenia, I'll be back to tell you a bit about what's on tap for Wednesday's edition of Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, if you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, you're going to want to check out my brand new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet Shop. There's an exclusive line of men and women's classic tees with a very cool design. It's a limited run and a limited time offer, a special price of $21 US. That lasts only until August the 19th. There are also mugs, tote bags, and stickers. Go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and find the Strange Planet Shop button at the bottom of the page. The Strange Planet Shop at strangeplanet.ca. It's a strange planet. Wear the shirt. Take the journey. Coming up next time, part one of a two-part tribute to the late paranormal investigator, author, lecturer, and my friend, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. Kelly Nita. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>